everyone, and welcome back. This is the Red Brigades pod, also known as the Moro pod, which is really the years of lead pod. We're on our eighth episode of Aldo Moro's Kidnapping. I don't know about you, but personally, I feel like we've been up all night doing MDMA and dancing. The sun is coming up, and we've got some really weird stuff all over our faces. We're starting to get really groggy, tired, and sort of cranky. And in all of the mystical and beautiful ugliness of everything, we're maybe coming to something that might look like crepuscular meaning. Note, I don't take drugs anymore. Maybe you can see why. Anyway, Moro has issued his most recent letter to party secretary Benigno Zaccagnini, his former protege, on April 24th. And it's broadly viewed as a final excommunication. He tells the Christian Democrats, don't even show up at my funeral, and they react with a mixture of severe and unrecoverable depression, on the part of Zaccagnini especially, and effrontery on that of Amintore Fanfani. I can understand Fanfani's frustration, honestly, as one of the few Democrazia Cristiana officials trying to do anything at all. But unfortunately here, it just funnels back into the front of firmness. Of course, Moro's DC comrades continued to say in public that Moro had basically just taken dictation from the Red Brigades. In their hearts, who knows what they really felt. It is true that the BR were filtering the information that Moro could receive, so they controlled the meta-narrative of the news and in their conversations, alternately termed interrogations, they could help frame his understanding of the outside. So a lot of what he was saying in the letters were informed by what the brigades wanted him to believe. For 40 days, Moro had been trapped with Prospero Gallinari and frequently subjected to Moretti's interlocution. We can tell that his reactions in the letters weren't censored, per se, but they were directed in some ways. The following day, the UN Secretary General, Kurt Waldheim, read out a statement in Italian before a camera. Like all of these statements, Waldheim's declaration is arduously crafted. I ask you to release Moro immediately. Such an action would be greeted with relief around the world, and all who devote their lives to the pursuit of a world of greater justice and greater social welfare would applaud this move. The interpretation here would go straight to their motive. The BR want noble things like social justice, and they're being recognized not as terrorists or criminals, but as a political force. Waldheim, unfortunately, was completely detested by the Red Brigades, so his statement carried little weight with them. In fact, Waldheim's history with the Austrian Nazis during the Reich had been exposed in the Austrian press, so he could only claim to have the opposite of credibility among anti-imperialists. However, for Morucci, this is exactly what they're looking for. From him, we have received credit on an international level, which we can consider more important than what we ask of the Christian Democrats. For Mario Moretti, on the other hand, there is still no backing down. Similarly, the Republican Party and the Communists alike were actually disgruntled by Waldheim's soft recognition of the BR. The same day, two more incredibly important documents were released. The first, a response from the DC authored by Donat Katin, rejecting the idea of a prisoner exchange of 13 for 1. The second is an open letter signed by Cardinal Michele Pellegrino, along with 72 Catholic representatives, which declares the irredeemable fault of a possible absurd murder falls only on the material perpetrators and organizers of it. The Red Brigades cannot delude themselves into unloading on others the weight of a death sentence that the Italian state does not recognize as applicable in any case. In other words, the command from on high adheres to firmness and completely blames the brigades, acting autonomously from any viable political authority. The DC's formal response, the open letter, and Waldheim's statement all poured out on April 25th, Liberation Day, and coincided with the mixed emotional celebrations of that day. 
At one rally, Luciano Lama, the famed communist union leader who'd been shouted down by students the previous year, declared, The duty of a new resistance is incumbent because the essential values for which we fought are seriously threatened. The design of the Red Brigades is to destroy democracy. At the end of this bloody tunnel, the dawn of a new and just society would not rise, but only a new fascism, a ruthless dictatorship, or, as the only alternative, a new civil war. At Piazza... At Piazza Cedra, the Autonomia Operaia groups assembled for their own rally. This was the same milieu that rose up against Lama, but today they echoed his message, albeit with their anti-state flair. Before they marched through the streets, they unfurled a banner at the front declaring, against state terrorism of the BR, against the regime of the DC and the Pechei. It was a clear message that perhaps surprised some, and within the protest, some slogans emerged supporting the brigades and saying, Aldo Moro is no more. The march was rushed by the police, with some blaming the anti-Moro sentiment for the pretext. Despite some rancorous disputes within their camp, the line, neither the BR nor the state, would become a rallying cry that put the autonomia groups on an important footing in the years ahead. Whereas before, they had always been uh, what I might term some interesting constructive tension between Autonomia and the BR, with the former distancing themselves from the latter while also to a degree entertaining some of their theories. By this point, there was a sharper break than ever. The break could also perhaps be seen in the efforts of the two former Potero Parayo members who had developed autonomia in part, Lanfranco Pace and Franco Piperno. While Pace had attempted to join the brigades the previous year, and Piperno had marveled at their geometric power after the massacre of Viafani, both were now struggling with brigadists Valerio Morucci and Adriana Faranda to try to bring Moro out of their captivity. Supported by the Socialist Party head Bettino Craxi, the effort on the part of Autonomia members to liberate Moro indicated a kind of heel turn in their sympathies for the brigades, as well as the major strategic differences that were really coming to a head, both within the government's line of firmness and in the brigade's commitment to organizationalism as opposed to movementism. That is, their executive committee's commitment to prefiguring the nucleus of the Communist Combat Party's strategic leadership and the movementist vision of taking its cues from the workers and activists in the streets. For the brigades and the Dece, the DC, the negotiation efforts of Morucci and Ferranda on one hand and Pace and Piperno on the other hand were almost just a sideshow something that could barely be recognized officially, if at all. Of course, other areas within Autonomia Apraia were calling for negotiations openly as well. In Milan, they joined with the autonomous socialist group Critica Sociale, which included a lawyer named Giannino Guiso, who defended some of the brigades, and tried to interface between those behind bars and those outside in order to bring about a compromise. BR co-founder Renato Curcio claims that he met with Guiso around 10 times, but nothing really came out of their meetings. According to Curcio's co-founder Alberto Franceschini, Craxi actually sent the brigadists a message apropos of a possible prisoner exchange. He says, Don't think you'll get out of this situation safely. Even if you manage to get yourself put on a plane to go abroad, they have set up a special group with a mandate to kill you as soon as the plane touches down. The only chance you have is to set up some negotiation. Franceschini summarized their own response like this. It's not possible that Moro hasn't said anything to you at all. Do as we did with Sosi. Start bringing things up in such a way as to open up ways out. We also issued a communique in which we proposed to shift the negotiation ground. No longer the release of pr political prisoners, but the improvement of prison conditions. And we instructed Guiso to report to Croxy that 
If he had somehow opened up to our proposal, we would have publicly declared that Moro's life had to be saved. If we had said something like this publicly, it would have been a serious problem for the, the comrades outside to kill Moro. The window between April 25th and May 1st was seen as a kind of a bye week. Nobody was going to kill anybody between Liberation Day and International Workers' Day. But on April 29th, the brigades did release a full 10 letters from Moro to dignitaries and politicians. I'll list the recipients in order of importance according to Moro. There's center-left stalwart Flaminio Piccoli, the Calabrian DC man who allegedly contacted the Andrangheta Riccardo Misasi, Renato Del Andro, and Moro's friend Tullio Ancora. Followed by the President of the Republic, Giovanni Leone, and of course Aminture Fanfani, Giulio Andreotti, uh, the Prime Minister at the time, President of the Chamber of Deputies, Pietro Ingrao of the Communist Party, Bettino Craxi, and Erminio Penacchini. For Piccoli, Moro ventures that the Pecha E is actually the one to blame. Quote, Perhaps the communists want to be left alone to defend the authority of the state. But the debt check can't stand it, because in our dough, there's an irreducible humanity and piety, a choice in favor of communist harshness against socialist humanitarianism would be against nature. Moro says he needs Piccoli to convince Andreotti to take an anti-communist stance in favor of negotiations. To Misasi, Moro says it's time to abandon the humanitarian approach for a direct confrontation with the legalists. But Moro himself hasn't given up on humanitarianism. The timbre of his 10 letters is basically uniform throughout. It's time for the Andreotti government to break with the Pechei and embrace the Socialist Party in efforts to free him on the basis of the line of socialist humanitarianism, which must be approached from multiple directions. And he makes his position clearer in the letter to his friend Tullio Ancora. In a sense, Moro's realization is that the historic compromise has condemned him and he seeks to retreat back to the comfortable center-left formula of the 1960s. To Ingrao, Fanfani, and Leone, Moro limits himself to mere appeals. He's not trying to reason with them, he's just begging them by this point. He's showing that his strategic efforts have, by this time, become limited to the people he views as his closest remaining allies. To Andreotti, Moro gave a personal and melancholic reminder of their times back in Catholic action together, when they were rebellious youths before the constitution of the new republic. In his diary, Andreotti wrote the equivalent of, I feel bummed because I can't do anything further to help Aldo. Lastly, to Craxi, Moro calls for speedier negotiations. Importantly, Craxi did an interview for Il Giorno, published the day the letters came in, on April 29th, where he basically takes a similar stand, saying that negotiations are impossible, but autonomous humanitarian efforts to open a line of communication without bestowing official recognition are worthwhile. He explains that this relies on initiatives imposed by principles even higher and more solemn than those which forbade access to the proposal made by the Red Brigades. To this he adds, the penal code imposes its protection of life by declaring that anyone who has committed an offense for having been forced to save oneself or others from a present danger of serious harm to the person. So, in a letter to La Stampa, Croxy declares similarly the need for something between the extremes of yielding and prejudicial refusal. During this period of the Ten Letters, Adriana Faranda and Valerio Marucci went to a small restaurant near Piazza Barberini to meet the brigade's operational leader in Rome, Mario Moretti, and tell him that the socialists are ramping up the pressure on the Dece. He told them that it was too late. 
The executive, including leaders of every column, had mandated that the execution must be carried out. The last chance, Moretti said, is to reach out to Aldo's wife, Eleonora Moro, also called Noretta, personally. And it would also appear that Piperno had told the PSI at this point that, quote, an authoritative exponent of the Dece needed to intervene. And shortly thereafter came a call from Moretti to Noretta Moro. It was sort of unprecedented and breaking in procedure at this point. He called on April the 30th, 1978, at about 4.30 p.m. from a payphone near Termini Station, basically echoing Piperno's assertion. He calls Via Forte Trionfale, where the Moros live on the top floor. Noretta answers, but he thinks it's Aldo's daughter. He states, We make this call out of sheer scruple because... Her father insists that you have been somewhat deceived and are probably reasoning on a misunderstanding. So far, you've all done things that are absolutely useless. Instead, we believe that the games are done and we have already made a decision. In the next few hours, we can do nothing but carry out what we said in press release number eight. So, we ask only this, that an immediate and clarifying intervention by Zakanini in the sense is possible. If it doesn't come out, realize that we won't be able to do anything other than this. Did you understand me exactly? Okay, so this is possible. We did it simply out of concern in the sense that, you know, a death sentence is not something that can be taken lightly, even by us. We're willing to bear the responsibilities that belong to us. The problem is political, and at this point, the Christian Democrats must intervene. We have insisted very much on this because it is the only way in which a negotiation can possibly be reached. Only a direct, immediate, and clarifying, precise intervention by Zakanyuni can change the situation. We've already made the decision. In the next few hours, the inevitable will happen. We can't do otherwise. I have nothing else to tell you. The phone call is taken as the brigade's 10th communique of the Moro kidnapping. Moratti later reflected on the fraught tension of the phone call taking place in a dismal underpass at Termini Station, surrounded by Morucci and Faranda. I wish I didn't want to do that. I wish I was somewhere else. I can only say clearly that there is still the possibility that the sentence will not be carried out. I, re I resented that tape. I have an excited tone and unnecessarily peremptory. I put the phone down, we slip away, I go back to Via Montalcini, and the longest and most useless wait of my life begins. Later, the judge, Ferdinando Imposimato, wrote, quote, Truly significant is the chronological and contextual harmony between Piperno's requests and the telephone communication made by Moretti to Miss Moro on the 30th of April when he requested an immediate and clarifying intervention by the Honorable Zaccagnini, especially since at the time this phone call was not yet known. So, Moretti himself was apparently growing a bit desperate. The negotiations are maybe kind of starting to work. The call is perhaps an indication of Moretti's own uncertainty as to what the next move could be. Things had been dragged out already, and the brinkmanship seemed to be reaching its finale. Even if the Christian Democrats included factions that wanted more to be done, particularly Fanfani and some of the younger supporters of Carlo Donat-Catin's faction, the government as such resisted negotiation. Some wanted to leave the party, feeling like their coldness to Moro was a breaking point. A Dece deputy named Elio Rosati, for example, asked Zaccagnini directly to change the party's position and gave serious consideration to moving to a different group. It was really difficult to understand the meaning behind the front of firmness for a lot of people. But really, what was at stake was the Red Brigade's implicit and explicit demand for recognition by this point. The historic nucleus had demanded to be recognized as a political movement and not just a bunch of criminals in order to gain privileges as political prisoners. On the outside, clearly the Brigade sought, with the spring campaign, 
a high-handed position of power over the political system, and recognition would have brought them more stature. Andreotti later stated, recognizing the terrorists would have meant nullifying the sacrifice of all those who had died, professors, magistrates, journalists, the policemen who risked their lives to defend the state. As for the police, beyond the strange case of the way that they busted Via Gradoli, they were really getting nowhere. A recent report from the Secret Services had declared Moro a captive in Lebanon in the hands of 50 Palestinians. They did come close to catching the brigadists from time to time, just by happenstance, but the BR always managed to slip out of their hands. A vignette from Lauro Azzolini of the Logistics Front illustrates the point. Quote, the mobilization of the police was massive, the control capillary. I experienced it personally. One evening I was traveling on the Rome-Genoa-Milan route to bring one of the communiques. After Voghera, about a hundred carabinieri board the train. I had a briefcase with the flyers and a gun. A carabinieri enters and orders, take down the suitcases and open them. While inspecting the suitcase of the one in front of me, I take down mine, open it, and turning, tuck the flyers into my shirt. I remember my neighbor's face. He had seemed pale, tense. The carabinieri goes out. I close the compartment door and say, they're from the Red Brigades. If you keep quiet and good, nothing happens. Near Milan, someone says, if I don't go to the toilet, I'll die. I could have told him, go right ahead, and instead I decide to accompany him. So much did I understand that they wouldn't say a word. We arrive in Lambrate before he's left the toilet. I jump down to telephone the organization that the trains are being watched. And yet, with efforts through Caritas and the Vatican, these attempts have been made to establish communications. The Socialist Party was, in a sense, going rogue, but in another way, they were just falling through on what most people in power wanted but couldn't express. The line of firmness was sort of an expression of a general popular demand and a fury, a public fury, with what the Red Brigades were doing. Just like the Red Brigades were virtually unanimous in wanting to murder Aldo Moro, except for Morucci, Ferranda, and one other person, which I'll get to. So we have here two solidified forces which are at war with one another in a sense. The Italian Republic and the Red Brigades. On May the 3rd, May the 3rd, on May the 3rd, the DC put out another statement acknowledging what the Socialist Party was trying to do. They could no longer publicly ignore it. Of the socialist initiative, at this point the government must be invested so that it examines the concrete possibilities with the widest range of democratic forces in compliance with the laws of our legal system, and in the exclusion of any negotiation with the authors of the massacre in Viafani and the kidnapping of Honorable Moro. The reaction from the government would be negative. The line of firmness could not be crossed. On the previous day, at about 5 p.m., the Red Brigades had achieved similar results. Adriana and Morucci met up with Moretti at the restaurant again, the same one, Piazza Barberini, but this time the discussion takes place outside on the street, and it is much less amicable. They pace around, arguing heatedly. It's a difficult conversation, with Barbara Bolzerani and Bruno Seghetti joining late. A vote cast among the five present resulted in a three-to-two verdict of death. The only other person besides Adriana and Valerio who opposed the killing of Moro in the Roman column operation was Laura Braghetti, a non-voting member. It did feel like there was some promise at that late hour, though. The names of Paola Besuschio and Alberto Buonoconto had been floated as potential exchanges for Moro not the 13 that the Red Brigades asked for, but maybe moving in this direction could have helped things. We haven't really discussed these two that much. Bonoconto was arrested in possession of a gun that had been robbed from an armory by the Nuclei Armati Proletari back in 1975. He was a philosophy student and the son of a manager in the oil industry who got into militant circles through his cousin, ironically named Aldo Mauro. 
Besuskio, on the other hand, had been a member of the Red Brigades from the early days, having studied with Renato Curcio and Mara Cagol at the sociology department of the University of Trento. She was also arrested in 1975 for robberies after her safe house was busted. While only two prisoners, these are viewed as very valuable to the Red Brigades. Freeing a member of the Nuclear Mati Proletari would give them credibility within their movement, while Besuschio was obviously personally valuable to Curcio and Moretti. At the same time, they were low-level members, whereas the brigades were asking for the freedom of Curcio himself, along with 12 others. We know that this attempt was serious because it was submitted to the Ministry of Justice for evaluation, but there it hit upon some equally serious opposition. Taking place under cover of secrecy and encountering significant delays, the effort would have been dead on arrival, even as the DC's upper echelon reviewed their options. The BR are still kept in the dark as to the whole process, so time is working against them. Meanwhile, the Pechei proclaimed its continued support of the Line of Firmness on May 2nd, and then, two days later, the government released a statement of similar magnitude authored its claimed by Andreotti himself. It should be noted here that this wasn't an unpopular stance in the public sphere. I've already gone over this, but one of the widows of a, a member of Moro's escort had literally threatened to kill herself, to commit suicide in Piazza del Gesù, if the line of firmness broke down, right in front of the Christian Democrats' headquarters. At the same time, Noretta Moro had threatened to burn herself alive in public as well. This was really high-drama Italian style. The country's barely holding it together. And anyone who thought that freeing Moro was a simple personal matter, that the state itself was not the immediate and direct target, would have been completely fooling themselves. The brigadists had made their calculations precisely to include a real challenge to the existence of the democratic state, and accessing Moro meant contending with the architecture of the kidnapping and everything that it meant. As Andreotti later said, the only way to liberate Moro, quote, would have been to be able to find where he was kept because the only offer the terrorists had was that of the 13 who had to be freed and it was absolutely impossible to access an idea of this kind. On May 5th, the brigades released their final communique, the ninth written press release. Rather than addressing the politicians, it was written to the revolutionary movement, which it defined as the fighting communist organizations. Aside from announcing the death sentence, the communique declared Moro's kidnapping a victory for the revolutionary movement and a crushing defeat for the imperialist forces. It called the Deche dumb, vicious murderers, insisting that it was they who were responsible for Moro's execution. They condemned Kraxi's negotiations as power games by an illusionist, adding that they would later publish the results of the interrogation through clandestine propaganda tools. Simultaneously, they released a letter to Noretta, Aldo's final letter to his wife. He'd actually written more than 20 letters in total, but the brigades had withheld many of them. Moro thought that the Minister of Justice had been the ones withholding his letters, and he even wrote to the Minister of Justice to ask for his letters to be sent through. The brigades, of course, withheld that one as well. In another letter to Zaccagnini, Moro had renounced his membership in the Democrazia Cristiana, which he had helped build. But that one was censored by the brigades as well. In that letter, Moro basically guilt-trips Zaccagnini, saying that it was he who pushed Moro to be party president, writing, quote, With your derisive silence, you have offended my person and my family with the absolute lack of legal decisions of the party organs. You've impaired democracy, which is our law, obscenely regimenting the Deche to make it incapable of dissent. You have broken with the highest tradition of which we could be proud. 
In a word, the brutal order initiated by who knows who, but carried out with astonishing uniformity by the Deche groups, has broken the solidarity between us. In this big thing full of implications, I absolutely cannot recognize myself. I refuse the custom, this discipline. I fear its consequences, and I simply conclude that I am no longer a Christian Democrat. Brutal. For Moro, Italy had to change to become more nimble, flexible, to abandon parochial approaches and to lead the modern world into peace and harmony. But nothing could change without the Dece. If his own kidnapping had been an opportunity for the Dece to change, it had reacted only by lurching back to its most reactionary posture. Fanfani felt the exigency of time pressing on him by this point. He called Noretta Moro, who had received Aldo's final letter a bit later, and she told Fanfani that she'd received it. This letter ends with the most crushing prose. To each one of my family, my immense tenderness that passes through your hands. Be strong, my sweetest, in this absurd and incomprehensible trial. There are the ways of the Lord. Remember me to all relatives and friends with immense affection, and to you and all a very warm hug, pledge of eternal love. I'd like to understand with my little mortal eyes how we'll see each other later. If there was light, it would be beautiful. My love, always fill me with you and hold me tight. After hearing from Noretta, Fanfani then went to Zaccanini at 8 p.m. asking him to convene the National Council. If there was to be an intervention, this was the final opportunity. Everything was clearly winding down. On the following day, as the newspapers published the brigade's final press release, Craxi himself met with Piperno and Pace at the Raphael Hotel. For proof of life, he said... Moro should use the phrase measure for measure in his next letter. Craxi went to his man Claudio Signorile after the meeting, urging him to go to Fanfani and ask him to make a public speech. Fanfani weighed the options, writing in his journal entry for May 6 that he'd reach out to fellow colleagues, but describing Paola Besuschio as unusable in terms of prisoner exchanges. Andreotti had found a loophole in the legality of the matter, noting that Besuschio's crime held a mandatory sentence that would have required her to remain in jail even if pardoned, unlike Buonoconto, whose freedom would have been easier to justify. Even with Buonoconto, though, the DC was dragging its feet. So, yeah. On Sunday, May the 7th, Pace met with Adriana and Valerio for the final time at the Piazza Colla di Rienzo. Pace begged them to postpone at least until Tuesday, when the Dece leadership had called for the DC's managerial group to meet. The process is going forward with Bonoconto, and on Monday, Bonoconto is actually transferred from a Naples prison in order to assess his health and review a later provisional release. While it seemed perhaps like a hopeful gesture for Craxi, the previous day a DC uh, top guy named Bartolomei had made a statement that the BR interpreted as shooting down any idea of negotiation or of either a humanitarian or a political solution. At the end of their meeting in Piazza Cola di Rienzo, Valerio told Pace, okay, I'm going to make the call. And he left him and Adriana to wait, but he did not make the call. The brigadists never communicated through the phone. It's not clear why Valerio did this, uh, why he got up. Maybe he was taking a walk around the block to cool down, doing some soul searching at a bar. We don't know, but certainly this call to nowhere could be seen as an analogy for the outcome of the negotiation an attempt to find a reasonable interlocutor to mediate with a father who's not there, a leader who could impose some decency on a situation of utter degradation. The BRs mired in an irreconcilable internal dispute that would turn worse with time. 
Morucci and Ferranda are digging in their heels, arguing that the movement was not ready for the level of confrontation that killing Moro would have brought about. The contradictions within and between classes had crystallized, they said. It was now better to reap their benefits after freeing Moro and returning to their redoubled efforts as heroes. They further declared it unconscionable that communists who struggled for liberation would murder a political prisoner in cold blood. According to Ferranda, Mario Moretti adhered to the executive's position, but stalled as long as he could. I find this somewhat questionable, since Moretti was leading the whole operation in Rome, but there are indications that he was being pushed to kill Moro by others. For instance, his call to Noretta Moro, which seemed to hold the significance of the outcomes of the negotiation, perhaps indicated some degree of desperation. As well, perhaps Morucci's denial that Moretti knew about the negotiations in the first place was an attempt to protect the latter from accusations from others in the executive that he had, in fact, been more sympathetic to the movementists than others understood. One of the things that had cursed the negotiations was the generally ideological analysis of the Socialist Party itself already convicted by the BR of half-measures, oblique references, rumors, and secrecy. The brigades wanted everything out in the open, direct and straightforward. They did not trust the socialists from the beginning. And beyond this, the socialists publicly denied any notion of negotiation, presenting things instead as a line of communication. Moretti later claimed that had a direct line been established by the Dece or the Pecei, they, quote, would have been forced to enter politics and would have freed Moro. In short, a truce could have been achieved through recognition of their political stature and negotiations with the governmental parties would have brooked a new organizational evolution. However, it was precisely the Brigate Rosse's aspiration to become recognized as an official fighting communist party rather than a bunch of terrorists that removed any capacity for negotiation on the part of the government. It becomes evident rather quickly here that the brigades are functioning on assumptions more nostalgic than realistic. There were communist parties. There were communist parties on the left. The Democrazia Proletaria bloc had brought groups like Il Manifesto, the Pedup, and Lotto Continua together in a kind of insurgent challenge from the left of the Pecei. Communist parties were by no means forbidden in Italy. In fact, there had been three or four electoral alternatives to the Pecei already by the 1970s. Even more, if you consider the independents and the radicals, The old days of having to fight your way against illegality and into recognition as an official party had left a real and bitter legacy. From the times of the liberal monarchy's expulsion of left-wingers at the turn of the century. But this wasn't the 1890s or the 1930s. If the brigadists had wanted to be recognized as a political party, they didn't have to go through murders and kidnappings. The reality is that their plan to achieve official political recognition shows their lack of ideas, the total LARPer fantasy world in which they lived, and the misconstruction of the stakes of the armed combat that they deployed. The BR is one of those subjects of inquiry that you work to research and understand, knowing that there has to be some recent and complex infrastructure of ideological cleverness at its heart. But you keep coming up for air, having found even less of a sign of hope with each dive. As much was noted by Alberto Franceschini, one of the founders of the BR, who stated that the desire for political recognition was the, quote, clearest confirmation of that bureaucratic and formalist mentality. For Franceschini, the BR needed recognition from the proletariat, not from the state, and seeking it in the latter illustrated a mismatch between goals and identity. So over the weekend, Ferranda had been sent to the beach of Ostia to collect some sand that would be rubbed over Moro's dead body in order to send investigators off the trail. Morucci writes of his feelings during that period, two or three days before the action, when everything was ready, fear gripped me like a beast and gnawed at my guts like an evil worm. I was sweating at the thought, and my legs went limp. Ferranda is still in disbelief. 
As she writes, quote, On May 8th, the final decision is made. No opposition can find space. I'm desperate, but I have to submit to the organization's choices. I accept this discipline upon my entry. How can I withdraw at this point? For a long time yet, I'll be unable to give myself an answer. Indeed, hours before the killing, Moretti told Ferranda that she'd be charged with driving Moro's body to its delivery point, something that she absolutely abhorred. She couldn't argue, but made her reaction pretty clear, clear enough that Valerio took Mario into the next room, and when they came out, he assured her that he would bring the body instead of her. So, on the morning of March 9th, Prospero Gallinari takes Moro down from the cell in Via Montalcini to the box in which he'd been transported on March the 16th, 55 days earlier. With Gallinari are Germano Macari and Laura Braghetti, who served as the public renters of the apartment in which Moro had been hidden. Now, there are some questions as to how all of this went down, but from available evidence, we can say that they were there in the garage. Someone actually came down to go to their car, and there was a really awkward moment there with Laura Braghetti trying to keep watch, and everybody kind of standing around in the garage as this person goes to their car and leaves. So what happens from this point is that Gallinari puts Moro in the trunk of the red Renault that had been used by the university brigade for about a month. They put a kind of a flannel over him. He thinks he's being released, so he's actually quite happy. And Gallinari shoots him with a burst from a silenced Scorpion machine gun with Germano Macari coming up and ending his life with a single silenced Walter PPK shot to the head. Now, in some accounts, this is reversed, where Makati has the PPK, and he's going to shoot Moro in the head, but the PPK jams, so Gallinari steps in with the Scorpion machine gun. Uh, but I find that one a little less credible. At around 8 a.m., Moretti drove the red car with Makari in the passenger seat and, and Moro's body in the trunk. They're tailed by Bruno Seghetti and Morucci in a Simca. They avoid the multiple checkpoints around Rome, mostly by taking main streets, passing the synagogue in front of the Ministry of Justice and going along Botteghe Oscure before dropping off the Renault in Via Caetani about 50 yards between Piazza del Gesù and the Pecce's headquarters at Botteghe Oscure. They then left in the Simca, after parking the car. From about 9 a.m., Morucci tried a couple of times to reach a member of Moro's family or close circle to transfer the news of the delivery. He gets back to his safe house with uh, Faranda, and then departs again around noon to make a call to Professor Franco Trito. At 12.13, his call to Trito comes through. Morucci tries to play it straight with a very dispassionate and almost medical tone. Pronto, Trito says. Uh, is it Professor Franco Trito, Morucci asks. After a little back and forth, uh... Marucci says, well, I can't spend much time on the phone, so he should tell this to the family. He should go personally. Even if the phone has it under control, it doesn't matter. He should go on uh, personally to say this. We are fulfilling the president's last wishes by communicating to the family where he will be able to find the body of the... where the... He should go personally and say this. We're fulfilling the president's last wishes by communicating to the family where they'll be able to find the body of the Honorable Aldo Moro. The professor kind of can't believe it. He asks him to repeat it a couple of times. And Morucci responds, no, I can't repeat. Look, then you must inform the family that they will find the body of the Honorable Aldo Moro in Via Caetani. By this point, Trito collapses into tears, and Morucci is attempting to hold it together uh, because he's sort of confirming, you know, he's an anti-imperialist and this is all war and this, that, and the other. 
There's some more awkward back and forth where Trito asks Morucci to speak with his father because he really can't hold it together. Morucci obliges and repeats the instructions to Trito's father. It really is one of the most dramatic moments in the whole um, kidnapping and murder of Aldo Moro. And I can actually play the clip for you of the phone call. notorious throughout Italy um, and become kind of the trademark of the coldness of the Red Brigades as Valerio Morucci tries to adhere to his sort of heroic persona as he's talking to this weeping professor and then to the professor's father almost lecturing him about how important it is to deal with family um, after murdering the husband and father. Some would try to say that it was actually Tony Negri who had placed that phone call in order to implicate all of Autonomia Operaia in the uh, Brigate Rosse structure. And uh, many people would go to jail over the, effectively, the rage that it induced. So... We are at this point at probably the bleakest part of what Zavoli called the Night of the Republic, right? This is the darkest hour. Socialist Party mediator Claudio Signorile recalled, quote, I still remember that tragic May the 9th when the news arrived at the Interior Ministry that Moro had been killed. I was in conversation with Francesco Cossiga. I was begging him, urging him to put pressure on his party to get Fanfani to move. They had warned him that the tragedy had occurred. He slumped in his chair. He said, it's over. And he promised, I resign. Meanwhile, Fanfani was actually finishing his bold speech to the Deced directorate, announcing that he was voting in favor of a new agenda running counter to the line of firmness. As he wrapped up his speech, Zaccamini is called out of the room. When Fanfani is finished, he went to see what Zaccamini, what this all was about. Uh, is with Andreotti, and they informed Fanfani of the news. According to some speculation, the May 9th assassination of Aldo Moro took place deliberately to coincide with Fanfani's deepening effort to free Moro. However, there's very little evidence suggesting that either these efforts would have borne significant fruit or that the brigades 
imagined a scenario in which the Democrazia Cristiana actually recognized their aims. Even if Alberto Buonoconto had been freed, it would have been insufficient and taken uh, far too long time, time-wise. For his part, Buonoconto went insane after the death of Aldemoro, committing suicide a little over two years later by hanging himself from the jam of a door. As scholar Marco Clementi makes clear, the Moro kidnapping took place at the end of the brinkmanship on both sides, once all cards had been put down and no further mediation had been possible. So Moretti's reflections on this bear precisely the overtones of one who has thrown himself into the abyss. If they'd sacrificed the president of the Dece, who else would they be willing to argue for? For nobody. The kidnapping of Moro is not an action gone wrong, a simple or big error of evaluation. It's the end of a way of thinking about guerrilla warfare. The end of the theory of armed propaganda. We will no longer obtain an objective on the political scene with guerrilla action, because the political scene has been reduced to pure defense of the state. In short, the assassination of Moro had not been a mistake, but the ultimate end of a way of doing armed struggle. Expectations about placing themselves on the same commanding heights as the Dece had been totally shattered. The brigades would never again be able to pretend that negotiations were possible. This is a self-serving conclusion, certainly, since armed propaganda was the philosophy of the historic nucleus, but in Moretti's words one can find a sense of failure and a sense of change. The impacts which the BR would not fully understand for at least a year turned the brigade's political existence on its head. The organization would see itself as only existing on the military level from now on. Curcio explained that the killing was a tragically destructive choice for the organization, which at the time did not have the political strength to manage a fact of that magnitude, certainly not having evaluated right from the start the possibility of being faced with an attitude of total closure, which would have involved the semi-obligatory choice of killing the prisoner, was a symptom of very little strategic foresight on the part of the comrades who planned the kidnapping. Personally faced with the news of Moro's death, I was overcome by a real despair. In the meantime, because I was verifying my intuition, that is, that the Red Brigades had set up an action beyond their political capacities, was perfectly correct. Secondly, because I was beginning to understand that the organizational military effects of the affair would also be disastrous. Behind bars, the historic nucleus began to discuss the issues during open air time. To elaborate and articulate their com complicated positions, they produced and reviewed discussion documents. After some months, they developed the conclusion that, in Curcio's words, quote, the Red Brigades are finished. Their story closes with this action, which leads to an extreme level of the political-military practices of a previous phase, that of armed propaganda. At the extreme level, which in reality represents a real leap in quality, the responses of public opinion, of the Italian state, of international forces, can no longer be the same as before. And the Red Brigades were not born, they're not prepared, they're not organized to face a new level of confrontation of this kind. It is not a question of adapting to a new situation of military confrontation, but of closing the history of our organization. This was the same critique that Prima Linea had leveled against the Red Brigades since 1977. In effect, the posture that the armed struggle was literally at war with the state was bogus. Conflict could be carried out with elements of the state in a general anti-capitalist and revolutionary movement, but the brigades were calling for a level of confrontation that exceeded exceeded anyone's capacity. And the historic nucleus were correct, as well, that the murder of Aldo Moro would have a deeper impact on the general scene of the armed struggle. In the words of Prima Linea member Ferrandi, quote, a key point of an organization of this type is the fact of having a friendly network, that is, people who are not part of the organization do not want tasks or roles and would not participate in actions, but are willing to provide you with houses, documents, and keep your weapons. When this type of character, who, despite appearances, keeps the organization alive, begins to disengage, 
You understand, even if you remove them on an ideological level, these people back off and practically the whole apparatus begins to become scleroticized. You find yourself a vast number of illegals and you no longer know where to keep them. You have to start multiplying the financial actions and by multiplying those, you begin to multiply the accidents, the dead, the injured, the arrested. A mechanism of sclerosis begins which within a year practically destroys the previous five years of work. So, basically, the Moro kidnapping had been so jarring to the public that people retreated from the vibrant radical scene that buoyed up the armed struggle. And as they did this, the armed struggle had to move further from the political to the criminal realm to support itself in its deepening alienation from the masses. Importantly, we will not see a decrease in the violent political activity during the rest of the 1970s, but the opposite. There are more killings, more attacks, more kidnappings, precisely because the the most militant within the struggle only felt emboldened while everyone else delinked from them. The result was a kind of unhinging that led to an even bloodier and more devastating political struggle. Significantly, the final issue of Senza Tregua comes out during the Moro kidnapping and on its final page is a stinging critique of the brigade's action. In a sense, the killing marked the end of any effort to approach public-facing and legal channels by the armed movement. As for Moro's family, after the news of the killing came out, they published a press release stating, The family wants Aldo Moro's precise will to be fully respected by the state and party authorities, which means no public demonstrations or ceremonies or speeches, no national celebrations or state funerals or medals of remembrance. History will judge the life and death of Aldo Moro. Moro's burial took place with only his close circle present. The only politician invited to the ceremony was Bettino Craxi. The government held its own funeral ceremony on May 12th against the will of Aldo Moro's letters and his family's wishes. It was held in the Basilica of St. John Lateran, the oldest basilica in the West and the mother church of Catholicism. The Pope delivered the homily, declaring, Lord, hear us, and who can hear our lament but you, O God, of life and death? You have not heard our plea for the safety of Aldo Moro, this good, meek, wise, innocent man and friend. In an interview with Sergio Zavoli, Moretti was asked what he would say to Noretta Moro if she was there. I would listen to her. I think she has the right to say whatever she wants, but I believe that Eleonora Moro will have found the explanation for what happened in the fact that her husband was president of the Christian Democrats. Otherwise, she'd not be able to explain what happened. So that's a pretty cold response. So it would seem that there's something in Moretti's meta-narrative that posits a BR as part of Moro's internal conflict. Moro wanted an alternative to the Deche, so-called blocked democracy, an alternative world between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, a world where human rights were respected. For Moretti, the brigadists wanted this too, but the necessity of the movement called for drastic action. Moro's kidnapping is not self-imposed, but the expression of his own desires to reform the country and his unwillingness to take the unnecessary measures and his unwillingness to take the necessary measures for that change to actually take place. For the Christian Democrats, of course, his captivity might have reflected the outcome of his own naivete, and perhaps by extension, his innocence. If you want to deal with communists, some might have said, this is what you end up with, their dishonesty, double-dealing, and closure of any humanitarian option in favor of sheer political blackmail. Both of these justifications seem self-serving, and it's probably better to remain agnostic as to the causal relations leading to the kidnapping. It's true that Moro's escort was insufficient and there had been lots of time to correct that problem. It's also true that the BR acted in their sole capacity and did not receive command from any higher power connected to the state. Indeed, they grilled Moro about what was just becoming known as Operation Gladio, as well as the massacres that had taken place in 1973, 1974, and 1969. 
Why would they have struggled for this information if they already knew and in fact were part of the answer? The postscript to the Moro kidnapping came in October, about five months after the killing. Police had escalated their searches of houses and apartments under the renewed command of General Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa. In Milan, they'd zeroed in on one apartment, a little place on Via Monte Nevoso. But more on the crazy story of Via Monte Nevoso another time. Thanks for listening to the eighth and final episode of The Moro Case. As always, I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod. <laughs>